Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Episode 64, The Battle of Belmont. Grant Takes Initiative. We are back with more of the military adventures of Ulysses S. Grant. Specifically, today we'll detail the first time he exercised command autonomy. And, in the process, he kind of seized the strategic initiative of the entire war in the West and began the long-term decline of Confederate power. Strangely enough, it all began with John C. Fremont and Leonidas Polk, which we'll explain. We've discussed Fremont before, and extensively, so we won't repeat all of that. His role today lay in the fact that he selected Ulysses S. Grant, whom he did not know very well, to head a detachment of soldiers stationed at Cairo, Illinois, and charged in part with keeping order along the Mississippi River and south. To explain the situation, Cairo, spelled C-A-I-R-O like the ancient Egyptian city, happens to sit at the far southern end of Illinois, at the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio River. One might expect this location to grow into a mighty urban agglomeration, but that never quite happened. However, it was still an important military point and required some protection. So, too, Fremont needed to control the river and prevent Confederate-friendly guerrillas from wreaking havoc in eastern Missouri. Now, slavery didn't dominate the economy of Missouri, but many plantations did still exist along the river, and there were secessionists. American soldiers patrolling the area would discourage any disloyalty and give heart to Unionists. However, there was another reason to place soldiers in this region, and that was to impress Kentucky. Remember that, at this moment, Kentucky was still on the fence about what to do over the war, trying vainly, still, to end the fighting before it got any worse. The time of neutrality is coming to its end, and Kentucky's choice seems as though it may decide the war itself. Both Union and Confederate armies stay outside of the state's borders, hoping that by showing respect, they will earn Kentucky's allegiance. However, both armies want to show the flag nearby, and create the impression that events and momentum are moving in their preferred direction. If Kentuckians see the American flag waving proudly just across the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, they too will take heart and urge their state to stand with their sisters under the old flag. Such were the main strategic issues facing Fremont's command along the Mississippi. To explain exactly how it came to this point, let us go back to Ulysses Grant's first command. For Colonel Grant, the aftermath of his first non-event in the face of the Confederate foe seemed more comedic than glorious. Specifically, when he went in to clear a reputed camp of pro-Confederate Missouri militia, he advanced to battle. As he moved closer and closer under a thick canopy of trees, he wondered if concealed riflemen were about to open up on him. Would his first battle end in cowardly flight? How would he lead in the thick of it if it came down to it? Well, he didn't discover it that day. The treasonous militia had all fled to the far end of Missouri a week or more beforehand. Grant just took the whole thing in stride and decided that perhaps they had been just as afraid of a confrontation as he had been. As he stated, this was a view of the question I had never taken before, but it was one I never forgot afterward. In fact, he soon would find himself in a real fight, and as we will see, handled it quite well. Ulysses Grant often made mistakes or failed but he rarely made the same one twice and never three times. Well, with the exception of sometimes trusting people too much. 
Though his faults go, that was an awfully forgivable one. Under other circumstances, his lack of guile led to problems. Many conniving, dishonest men found him easy to fool, especially in matters of money. In wartime, however, he seemed entirely too honest to deceive, and consistently outfoxed everyone around him. Yet his manner and thinking were so plain and straightforward that no one, friend or foe, could quite grasp the depth of his thought. He simply looked at the problem, decided on a solution, and then went out to do it. And that first advance, when it turned out to be all rumor and no enemy guns, occurred in mid-July. Since Colonel Grant had cleaned up some of the problems thereabout and guarded the roads effectively, uh, the railroads especially lay vulnerable to Confederates making merry by removing the rails, Brigadier General John Pope assigned Grant four more regiments to handle. This, in fact, made Grant's command more than a full brigade itself, although this often happened in the war and he remained the colonel, for all of about one week. In fact, it was not until August that he learned that he had received this promotion, and from a newspaper he received by chance of all things. A military chaplain happened to get a copy of the Missouri Democrat, which listed the promotion. The War Department, confused as ever during this time, evidently failed to deliver the news officially as would normally be the case. It had happened in a bit of the old Washington way, and Grant well understood the circumstances. Congressman Elihu Washburn, the elected representative for Grant's previous home in northwestern Illinois, had made Grant something of a pet project. He pushed Grant's career forward, and any of Grant's successes would give Washburn additional influence in the halls of Congress. And he had, more or less, just submitted Grant's name for promotion. The War Department and Congress alike had hardly any time to closely investigate its new generals. Grant was a West Pointer and had actual experience fighting in Mexico, and he was serving out now, and, well, that all seemed good enough for the moment. If anyone at all remembered the old rumors about his drinking, that was a long time ago, and anyway, Representative Washburn had met him personally and thought him sober enough. So Congress voted, the order went to the President, and Lincoln signed it, and that was that. It had taken seven unhappy years, but Grant went from being miserably stationed out on the Pacific, far from his family, to enduring constant hardship trying to make a comfortable life for said family, to falling back on his father and brother for a living, to now rocketing up the career ladder. He had command of a brigade in one of the most key strategic locations of the war. That was something to write home about, which he did frequently. His first order of business, however, was to write, in a deliberately roundabout fashion, a thank-you letter to Washburn. His second was to go visit Fremont, just arrived at St. Louis, at the behest of General Pope. While the humble as always Grant raised an eyebrow at the luxurious accommodations and elaborate military airs Fremont put on, now he could deal with that. General Grant was already beginning to follow the style of his own hero, Zachary Taylor, But as long as Fremont delivered success, then he could play Winfield Scott as he pleased. Grant found himself a little less pleased when he met Fremont in person, however, owing to the fact that the military department apparently existed, not in the state of Missouri, but in the state of confusion. Grant, for the moment, came away with very little impression of what, exactly, Fremont desired of him. That said, General Fremont, in turn, apparently believed that he could trust Grant to hold down things on the southeastern flank of Missouri for the moment. As mentioned, control of this area would become vital for Union strategy. Fremont looked at Grant and decided that, well, the latter man could entirely handle it so that he, that is Fremont, 
could concentrate on sorting out the new military administration and countering the Confederate threat to southwestern Missouri. For the moment, he dispatched Grant not east to Cairo, but southeast to Ironton. While at Ironton, Grant spent his time patrolling and scouting out the positions where some of the Confederate guerrillas were hanging out and causing mischief. There is no real fighting to speak of for the moment, which was good because it gave him a chance to drill his men and get everything in order. But he did spend a great deal of time there poring over maps. The man who owned the land where those troops were camping talked to him and discovered Grant looking over strategic pathways and thinking about how to make it advance. He even got a better map for Grant when asked. To explain why this was necessary, the War Department had never really planned for an extensive war in its interior and did not have a ready supply of quality maps available. Until mid-war, officers would often take whatever they could get, often the work of local surveyors or even commercial mapmakers. But Grant had all too little time to spare. He was soon on his way to Jefferson City, in the center of Missouri. The aftermath of the Battle of Wilson's Creek threw General Fremont's plans, only just forming, into chaos. Because the battle temporarily opened a gap in the military defense of the state, he needed Grant to fill that hole and guard the capital. There, General Grant drilled his soldiers some more instead of digging in. Now, we mention this for a reason, because it will become important in a future episode on the Battle of Shiloh and the changing face of the war. At the end of August, Grant received fresh orders from Fremont, returning him more or less to his previous posting in southeastern Missouri, but also now giving him control of southern Illinois. Implicitly, he wanted Grant to look towards the possibility of making an advance in the very near future. Fremont did not explain his reasoning, but he chose Grant for this role over commanders with some amount of seniority on him. Later on, Fremont explained that Grant undertook orders quickly and without hesitation. I selected him for qualities I could not find in any other officer, he said. For General Grant was a man of unassuming character, not given to self-elation, or dogged persistence and an iron will. As we will see, Fremont ironically wanted Grant to quickly mass a force at Cairo and then guard the vital point by occupying Columbus, Kentucky. Now, both were strategically important towns, the former controlling the confluence of two great rivers, but the latter being a high point over the Mississippi, with road connections inland. Also, as long as the Confederates controlled the opposite bank of the Mississippi at Columbus, they could support raiders and guerrillas in nearby Missouri indefinitely. So one way or another, the Union must, by absolute necessity, secure that area. Thus, General Grant received, as his first really serious challenge, the goal of controlling potentially the single most vital military district in the entire war. No pressure, Ulysses. On a lighthearted note, given his habit of emulating Zachary Taylor, Grant also inadvertently replicated some of the great warrior's implied humor. Taylor had often confounded visitors by wearing ordinary civilian clothing. General Grant similarly arrived at Cairo, also wearing civilian clothing. The man in charge of the post, Colonel Oglesby, did not even realize who Grant was or that he was in the army, let alone his new commander, until Grant, on the spot, sat down and wrote out an order taking command. <laughs> Well, that occurred on September 2nd. Three days later, an agent in Fremont's employ alerted Grant to vital news. The Confederacy had violated Kentucky's precarious neutrality by occupying Columbus first. In one sense, this was a difficult problem. Grant had, of course, hoped to take control of that same location. 
In another, it was an absolute godsend, for the Confederacy and Jeff Davis had just handed the Union and Abraham Lincoln one of the greatest victories of the war without spilling a drop of blood. The man who took that fateful step was General Leonidas Polk. Now, we don't have time today to thoroughly explore his life. In brief, Polk, a second cousin to the president of the same name, came from North Carolina and had attended West Point, among other prestigious institutions. West Point at that time held weekly Episcopalian services and required all cadets to attend regardless of belief. But the Episcopalian, or Anglican Church, was also particularly prominent among many areas of the South at the time so it was not that surprising to see a southern-born man attend the church anyhow. But years later, Polk resigned his commission, not to seek private employment, but to take up the role of clergy. By the time of the Civil War, he had risen to the rank of Bishop of Louisiana. He married well, too, and thereby acquired considerable wealth and became a planter himself. But he was also approaching 60 by the time of the war, and for that reason alone, he had good cause to hesitate when Jefferson Davis offered him the position of Major General. But he probably had a few other reasons, not least is that it's unusual for clergy to take up position other than chaplain in the armed forces. However, the war split the American branch of the Episcopal Church in half, and the allegiance of the southern half of the Confederacy was never in doubt. Indeed, Episcopal priests would prove relentless in publicly supporting the Confederacy, to the point that many of them in the South received some manner of reprisal from offended Union Army officers. As a Southern patriot, Bishop Polk put down his mitre and took up the uniform. However, while he proved energetic enough for active service, he also showed a streak of somewhat questionable judgment in command. At this time, too, the Confederate war effort in the West looked rather shaky. Just a few months ago, the general assumption had been that there would be no war, or perhaps just a single battle in Virginia, and then everything would get sorted out. But as we know, that did not happen. Instead, the Union had ramped up its military power far, far beyond what the Confederacy had available or even imagined. At this time, pro-Confederate raiders in Missouri were giving General Fremont a headache. Yet the actual Confederate army in Tennessee looked at the swelling ranks drilling on the Ohio River with increasing concern. They could not match those numbers. Also, the effort in Virginia was at this time consuming the lion's share of military resources. Now we will detail the matter of Polk and his superior Albert Sidney Johnston in the future. For now, Bishop General Polk went on the advance, intent on securing the vital position at Columbus. However, in doing so, he made the crucial mistake of entering Kentucky. The state was already leaning more towards the Union, voting in a Union-friendly legislation, and so perhaps Polk and Johnston assumed they could only turn things around by direct military action. After all, secessionists so far had obtained victory after victory by wild enthusiasm, not careful planning. Yet when General Grant heard of the action, he quickly realized the proper response. Instead of advancing against Columbus, he would instead move on Paducah. Still on September 5th, Grant prepared his command to move that very night. The movement had come on such short notice that the soldiers had no idea where they were going. Nevertheless, Grant outfitted this expedition as perfectly as the time allowed. In the process, he also showed a surprisingly deft political hand. Given Grant's lack of political experience, this seems to have been an almost shocking level of awareness. Yet during this day, 
he also dispatched a letter for the Kentucky legislature via the Speaker of the House. He explained why he was moving on to Kentucky soil. I regret to inform you that Confederate forces in considerable numbers have invaded the territory of Kentucky and are occupying and fortifying strong positions at the Hickman and Chalk Bluffs. This was important because by doing so, Grant explicitly portrayed himself and the Union as defending and assisting Kentucky against a violation of her physical and political integrity. He communicated his intentions directly to the political leadership of Kentucky, ensuring it could not be viewed as an unexplained invasion itself. Strictly speaking, he ought not to have done this by military authority, but instead left that in the hands of his superior, General Fremont. But it was probably the right choice given the extremely limited time. For his part, Fremont would instruct Grant to refrain from doing so in the future, but barely slapped his wrist otherwise. In any case, Grant and the first of his troops arrived in Paducah at 8.30 a.m. the next day, having steamed up the Ohio in the dead of night. And this was important, because occupying Paducah was the perfect counter to Polk's occupation of Columbus. If you glance at even a modern map that shows rivers, you'll easily see why. Paducah happens to sit at the confluence of the Ohio and Tennessee rivers. Very close nearby, the Tennessee River itself absorbs the Cumberland River. And these two rivers flow all the way down from the Appalachian Mountains. The Cumberland passes through Nashville, the capital and largest city of Tennessee in that time and today. The Tennessee River flows from Knoxville to Chattanooga into northern Alabama and Mississippi, and then turns northward and flows parallel to, but in the opposite direction of, the mighty Mississippi. In short, Grant's occupation of Paducah allowed him to threaten General Polk's position at Columbus from the flank. And because Polk had moved first, no Kentuckian could blame Grant for moving onto the city. In fact, the town residents really were nervous, unsure of what occupation by Union or Confederacy might mean. Supposedly, too, some of Polk's advanced units were only 10 miles away when Grant landed. That said, the Confederates could not have had many soldiers in the area given their limited numbers. In the moment, General Grant also reached out to the citizens of Paducah, trying to reassure them that he came as a friend. He promised to respect their rights and even to withdraw once the state was able to defend itself, whatever that meant. And this was a bit of astute political ledger domain. Everyone understood that no one state could go alone anymore, but it sounded right. In practice, the occupations of Columbus and Paducah ended Kentucky's neutrality. With a Union-friendly legislature, and a governor now also increasingly leaning towards the North, the Confederacy would have had a difficult time under any circumstances. But their advance, not only to Columbus, but also across other parts of southern Kentucky, drove a massive wedge that effectively pushed Kentucky away. Though some secessionists would privately make their way to the Confederacy to join up, the state united in support of the national perspective. Her delegates had never resigned from their positions in Washington, and now she would clad her soldiers in Union blue. Henry Clay, it seemed, had won final posthumous victory over John C. Calhoun. General Grant was thinking much more about the future than the past in the moment. He spent September drilling a much-enlarged force, thousands of men in total camped near Paducah alone. General Grant's command included many more soldiers, patrolling a considerable portion of Missouri, Illinois, and now Kentucky. In the process, 
he also renewed a friendship from a decade past. Charles Ferguson Smith was an army man with a long service. Though in his mid-fifties, he often seemed older due to his flowing, thick mustache, all white. He had the respect of nearly everyone who met him, and had, in fact, taught Grant at West Point. He also fought in Mexico, and his career spanned more than three decades. However, he didn't see any reason to slow down with the onset of civil war, and decided a good battle or ten was just the thing. General Fremont sent Smith, who had also just received a General Stripes himself, to take over the occupation of Paducah and the day-to-day management there. Mindful of the older man's pride, he also allowed that he should report to Fremont instead of to Grant. Now, General Fremont was concerned that Smith might feel irked that the much younger Grant now outranked him. Since Grant's promotion went through earlier, he was in fact one of the more senior brigadiers in uniform. As it happened, Fremont needn't have worried. Instead of feeling jealous, Smith heartily approved of his students' rise through the ranks and cooperated without hesitation. In the meantime, General Polk's advanced Confederate forces had entrenched strongly at Columbus, turning it into a fortress to resist a rather large attack, either from the river or land. The site now held 150 cannon in extended fortifications erected under Generals Polk and also Gideon Pillow. You may recall some brief mention of the latter man during our series on the Mexican-American War. With no formal training and, it appears, very little military talent, Gideon Pillow would go on to achieve precisely nothing of use during the war. The fortress, however, controlled the Mississippi, and no ship that in active service could feasibly assault it. As October gave way to November, Grant prepared for some kind of more aggressive move against Columbus. On November 1st, in fact, General Fremont sent a message asking General Grant to be prepared to move at a moment's notice. He wanted Grant to go ahead and make some kind of demonstration to distract Polk and keep the Confederates off balance. But if you remember our episodes, it was Fremont who received not a moment's notice. Washington sent out the message that Fremont had been relieved of duty the next day. And this created an unexpected opportunity for Grant to take the initiative and decide matters on his own hook. Since Grant had the previous orders in hand, he just, well, went ahead and undertook the action prescribed. For his target, he set his mind not on Columbus, but Belmont. Now, Belmont was a small town lying just opposite of Columbus on the Missouri side of the Mississippi River. General Polk had occupied the site with some of his own troops, which also complicated Union efforts to control southeastern Missouri. Of course, that meant it was very much Grant's business to do something about it if he could. What Grant resolved to do was an amphibious landing, rolling up to Belmont, but avoiding the Confederate guns on the bluff. He would land 2,500 soldiers and, hopefully, ambush the Confederates still in camp. They would then destroy the camp and disperse or capture the soldiers. Now, he lacked the troops and supplies to do more at the moment, but that would be enough for one day's work. On the attack, everything seemed to work out. Troops at Cairo climbed aboard the ships, once again having little idea what was happening, and then cheered once they realized they were turning south. No more of this drilling and marching to no effect this day, anyhow. They didn't know it, but they weren't alone either. General Grant had ordered a regiment to shadow the Confederate works at Columbus from the land side and thereby distract him. But he'd never intended to take the full defenses head-on. At eight in the morning, 
On November 7, 1861, General Grant's troops quietly landed upriver from Belmont, entirely unseen, and then marched immediately on the post. Opposing them were only 700 Confederate soldiers. The Confederate camp, a roughly square affair and somewhat poorly guarded, came under attack at nine, with the Union boys engaging in a skirmish battle from three sides. Only the river side of the camp was still secure. Now, even there, two wooden gunboats moved up to support the attack, but they could not risk moving too close due to the threat of Confederate gun emplacements at Columbus, plus some homemade naval mines placed in the river. Now, given later examples of how these worked, or more accurately, didn't work later in the war, the mines may have been no threat at all. But the gunboats wisely hesitated to risk it, and they were not really needed at the moment. Skirmishing and gunplay often took time in the Civil War, and the Battle of Belmont was no different. It took three hours for the Union men to overrun the rather small camp, but the result was not that much in doubt. Grant had the initiative, and he had prepared his men psychologically. The Confederates did not expect to fight that day, and were outnumbered considerably. Moreover, despite having a huge array of cannon theoretically available, well, they fired ineffectually and accomplished little. General Grant rode around behind the lines and kept encouraging his soldiers forward to keep up the pressure and make progress. If he did not properly control the course of the battle, he at least made himself present and the soldiers on task. Or at least he did until the men won. Victory in battle sometimes brings problems almost as great as defeat, and at Belmont, Grant discovered this for himself. Having overrun the camp, the Union soldiers lost their heads. Instead of capturing the Confederate soldiers driven to the riverbank, they grabbed souvenirs or held themselves to a spot of breakfast. Their officers represented their station little better. As Grant put it, The moment the camp was reached, our men laid down their arms and commenced rummaging the tents to pick up trophies. Some of the higher officers were little better than privates. They galloped about from one cluster of men to another, and at every halt, delivered a short eulogy upon the Union cause and the achievements of the command. This delay unfortunately gave General Leonidas Polk, present in person across the river, an opportunity to retaliate. He dispatched two forces across the river, as fast as the boats could carry them. First, a main force of five regiments would go retake the camp directly, while a second smaller unit of two would land just north and try to cut off the Union soldiers from their ships. All the while, the biggest guns mounted at Columbus could now open up with far less fear of hitting their own soldiers. It really was a good plan of Polk's given the short time he had to devise it, but General Grant did not intend to fall prey to it. This did nearly panic the Union ranks. The soldiers had at first fought furiously for hours, and then let their heads swell with victorious pride. Now that Polk punctured their pretensions a little, they lost nearly all control. Some apparently sat down and waited to be captured while others reacted with near panic. Grant tried to get them back into the ranks. He could see that the situation was serious, but hardly desperate. He had shouted himself hoarse that day, however, and few apparently heeded his call. So to get his soldiers to pay a little more attention, he ordered the Confederate camp set on fire. This was done, which certainly brought an end to the looting, but he needed someone to lead the way back home. Enter Colonel John Blackjack Logan. If you don't recall, he was the congressman who decided to hoist a gun at Bull Run and march in with the Michiganders. 
Well, following that, he'd gone back to Illinois to raise the 31st Regiment, and now commanded it at Belmont. He got his men into line, turned them about, and led the way marching back the way they'd all come. And the other troops more or less followed in their wake. Now, too many of the Union soldiers fled in fear, running for their lives even as General Grant, probably rolling his eyes a little, tried to get a defensive rear guard into line while the soldiers reboarded the transports. However, the men's discipline had failed, and once they saw the transports, they rushed aboard. Grant ironically wound up nearly left on shore. He was concerned that some of the men had been left behind in the flight, even while the Confederates closed in. The good ship, Bell Memphis, nearly departed, when the captain realized that Grant was still out there. He ran a plank down, probably assuming that General Grant, still on a horse, would have to get off and leave his mount. Instead, Grant, ever the master equestrian, simply slid his steed down the bank and then trotted up the plank, still on his horse, easy as you please. In a deep irony, as we will shortly see, General Polk noticed Grant, but assumed he was an ordinary soldier. He reportedly mentioned the unknown Yankee to his staff and suggested they try to shoot him, but no one did. It might have been a difficult shot anyhow, and these were staffers who likely had relatively few guns on their person. So Grant escaped, though not without one parting gift. Confederate soldiers, now without any obvious threat, rushed to the riverbank and exchanged gunfire with the ships. Grant, who had taken a moment to sit down after a very long and tiring day, got up just in time to see a musket ball plunge into the chair right where his head had been a moment earlier. So much for the Battle of Belmont which again represented only a little more than an aggressive raid rather than serious combat. But in the aftermath, it oddly proved one of the more comfortable Union victories, even if it had been a tactical defeat. Though it was a tactical defeat only in part, Grant had accomplished his intended goal, which was to raid and destroy the Confederate camp at Belmont. This done, he extricated his command and returned to base. He only failed to take as many prisoners as he wanted. Since he did not have, and certainly had not brought, the numbers required to directly assault Columbus, this was as much as could be expected. He had inflicted equal casualties upon the Confederate force, despite attacking with a much smaller group of troops. In total, both the Union and Confederacy lost a little over 100 killed, about the same captured or missing, and 300 or so wounded. In contrast, General Polk could report that he had driven off the Union force and held the battlefield. But the strategic consequences lay entirely on the Union side. Just after the battle, General Polk wired Richmond to report that he had been attacked by 8,000 soldiers, had routed them all, and killed General Grant in the process. Grant didn't even bring 3,000, had burned a Confederate camp so there was little to hold, and Polk missed his one shot at Grant's life. Twice. In what would become an embarrassing pattern for so-called Confederate victories in the Western theater of the war, Polk had to slowly walk back those uh, dubious accomplishments over several days. Pretty soon, everyone realized the affair had been, at best, a draw for the Confederacy. And at worst, it looked like Grant had walked up and sucker-punched Polk and then walked away. General Polk, feeling somewhat humiliated, hunkered down in Columbus. In the end, he would accomplish little there and evacuate the city in March of 1862, Grant having bypassed the Gibraltar of the West entirely. Ulysses S. Grant, however, probably reflected on the lessons of his battle, and as usual, he learned from them very quickly. He had not controlled the battle very well, 
this would have to change, and he would take a firmer hand in the future. The soldiers had gone out of control very quickly. That, too, would require correction, although he made sure to heartily congratulate them for their service. The Confederates had responded faster than he believed likely. In the future, he would prefer not to give them another such chance. The gunboats could have bombarded Polk's attempt to cross the river, but they had returned upstream too early, so he would need to cooperate more closely. And yet Grant had a great deal to brag about, had he been a bragging man. He had just commanded his first truly independent battle, and he walked away from it with honor intact. He had previously felt fear of a little colonel with some Missouri militia. Now he found courage fighting against General Polk and the Confederacy. His battle plan required aggression, energy, speed, and stealth, and he had delivered all four, even as his enemies never saw it coming. His soldiers lost their heads, but Grant didn't lose his, and in the end, got his men back to the ships. Ulysses S. Grant had a long way to go, it was true but he had shown more than a mere dash of fighting spirit. In addition, he had a kind of imaginative enterprise needed in this war. He didn't wait around and then advance in the obvious way. Instead, Grant looked around, figured out what he could do now, today, to move the effort forward, and then he went and did it. And if that involved attacking from the most unusual angle he could find, well, he just did that thing. General Polk could never quite grasp that in turn. He was a state officer, often beloved by his soldiers, but one whose thinking betrayed the obvious. He saw Columbus in front, so he occupied Columbus. When Grant in turn landed at Paducah and thereby threatened him from 30 angles, he had no real idea of what to do except to dig in and wait. As green as General Grant was, and as green as the federal troops were, that proved a fatal mistake. Bishop General Leonidas Polk had bought the Confederacy a few months but he had lost them, Kentucky, and the strategic initiative, and they would never entirely regain it in the West. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. That's all for this week, and thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time.